Matthew 5.10, this is Jesus talking, and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. These may be some of the most challenging verses in all of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus sets before us two realities that feel like oil and water to us. What are those two realities? Persecution, because we belong to him, and the call that that we are to rejoice in the midst of it. Those two things, they don't dovetail together in the natural, and yet Jesus is saying to his original disciples 2,000 years ago and teaching us also as his followers that persecution is something that not, we don't necessarily, we don't enjoy the persecution, but we can rejoice in the midst of it. And as a matter of fact, Jesus says we should go ahead and do that. Now, I'm going to be real honest here because I'm preaching to primarily people who have been in the American church or the Western church in the 20th and 21st centuries. And I think we need to be honest. I think we owe a debt of honesty to our brothers and sisters in Africa, in Asia, and in the Middle East. We owe a debt of honesty when we have to acknowledge we know very little about persecution, very little about it. Matter of fact, let me give you some statistics from Open Door USA. I'm not a big statistic guy, so when I give them, it's because I feel like they're important. But just know this, and, and let's remember, let's not get siloed here. When we're saying Christians, we're talking about our eternal spiritual family. We're ta- it doesn't matter what their nationality or what their race or what their dialect is. These are our brothers and sisters. We have the same father. And so the most recent statistics put out by Open Door USA so it tells us this, that about 345 Christians on average globally are killed for their faith. So 345, I, I actually believe that's a low estimate, but these are recorded numbers. About 345 believers, brothers and sisters worldwide, are killed because of their loyalty to Jesus. About 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked every single month worldwide. Uh, an average of 219 Christians are detained without trial or arrested, sentenced and imprisoned every month globally just because they are followers of Jesus. So around 220 every month. These are real people with real names, real families, real stories, and obviously real faith. Um, It is reported that around 245 million Christians globally Uh, experience high levels of persecutions in the countries that are on the world watched list for persecutions. Um, Worldwide, one out of every nine Christians experience high levels of persecution. One out of every nine, and most of that is not happening here in the United States. Uh, How many of, who who, who wants to risk and say, what's the number one uh, foreign nation that persecutes Christians most? It's North Korea. Do a little research. A little Google will get you a long way. Just do a little research. The testimonies of Christians that have escaped North Korea are horrific. Uh, Matter of fact, I'm not even going to detail some of the things that are done to them. It's just not fit. But it's unbelievable. North Korea remains, I think it's the eighth year in a row, the number one nation for persecuting Christians uh, worldwide. And of course, Islamic oppression is fueling Christian persecution in eight out of the top ten countries that persecute believers. So as politically as incorrect as it may be, let's, let's just be honest, uh, Islam is going hard after Christians in the parts of the world where they are not opposed, resisted. And when we see Sharia law being exalted globally and sought to be enforced in Western countries, there's a purpose behind the Islamic movement. And part of it is that there might be a domination by Islam. And in order to do that, all other religions will have to bow. So we're not talking about something that exists in the realm of theory. And we're talking about worldwide. But here's the thing. 
Jesus said that is the way it is going to be. There will be persecution until the very end of the age. And if, if the news that we've already heard tonight isn't depressing enough, um, the persecution that's coming to the church dwarfs anything that has ever happened before. And you, you can just read that in the book of Revelation, and it's all there in your Bible for you. So, so what do we do with these realities? Because that's a lot of heaviness. And you and I are living in a nation where currently it's free, and although there's resistance, I don't know that we could honestly say that we have anything to compare with the violent persecution that's going on uh, in other parts of the world. But I want to say this. Um, although it may not be violent, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist and it is increasing in the United States. So I'm going I'm to walk us through this, and I want some of you who have experienced the level of persecution that has come to you in your family, at work, in your neighborhoods, among your peers, I want you, though it may not be violent, and it may not be as dramatic as imprisonment, forfeiture of property, physical harm, and all of those things, um, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't connect with you in the midst of whatever is happening against you because you are loyal to him. So let's walk through this. That's not the whole message tonight. You're going to leave happy, okay? Because some of you are like, can I go now? Just hold on, hold on. There's breakthrough at the end of it because I want to go back and review all of the blessings that Jesus pronounced on the meek, on those that are poor in spirit, and, and all of the, the uh, framework of the Beatitudes. So first of all, let's do, let's start with the burdens. Let's start with the burdens. This is where we must walk as Christians. This is the reality as Jesus gives it. He, he just expresses it, first of all, in a stunning sentence. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're probably familiar with that statement, and I'm going to tell you, there was this day where it was spoken for the first time, and it would have blown everybody's mind. Because nobody thought that way. Nobody said that kind of stuff. The whole Sermon on the Mount is so revolutionary and counterculture that so much of what Jesus said stretched people to the maximum level, but maybe nothing stretched them more than when he said, hey, if you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, there's the reason. Let's just walk through this. I'm going to teach this and hopefully throw a little fire on it so it won't be boring, but the reason for the persecution, um, he says it in two different ways, in verse, beginning of verse 10 and the end of verse 11. He says, here's the reason. This is what real persecution is. It is for righteousness' sake, which Jesus equates with being persecuted on his account. So let, let me tell you what persecution is not. Persecution is not you being an obnoxious Christian, being a jerk, being a judgmental, opinionated, loudmouth dummy at work in the family in the neighborhood, and then when they cry foul, you say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Wrong. That's an illegal move in the kingdom. You need to be sidelined for a moment. What am I talking about? It's not when we act unchristlike and suffer for it. It's when we act Christ-like and suffer for it. So if, if, you're, if you're the loud, uh, listen, I've got all these images running through my mind. You, you know, the, the poor examples of Christianity that picket soldiers' funerals with those profane signs and they, they, they attribute to God this nastiness, that's not the Lord. And then they take pride in that they're rejected and defamed and vilified in the press. Well, I'm just going to say it, they're getting exactly what they deserve. Because they're acting in a misrepresentation of Jesus. They're calling it Jesus. Jesus is not defending them. He's not endorsing them. He's just letting them reap what they sow. And I'm going to tell you, they don't have a reward for that in heaven. There's nothing coming their way for that kind of nonsense that they're doing uh, at these soldier funerals. What am I talking about then? Jesus says it for living righteously. Well, what is he talking about? Well, what do the Beatitudes say? He's just defined what a righteous life can look like. An absence of pride, which means we're being poor in spirit. We're being meek instead of being um, arrogant and strutting and chest-thumping and bold and asserting ourselves. We're using our strength for the good of others. We're actually operating in what the Beatitudes list for us. Let me just remind us of what they are. Remember being, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn their own sin and they, they live with a certain level of mourning. Jesus said, when the bridegroom is gone, the people will fast, the people will mourn, but when he is among them, they don't do those things. So part of mourning spiritually is, is that we're longing for the return of Jesus and we just can't be altogether glib and casual until he comes back. That's living righteously. We're living for the second coming. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That you're grieved when something unrighteous happens within you or comes out from you or happens around you. You're saying, oh, I long for righteousness. I long for the character of Jesus to be formed in me. I long for the righteousness of God to cover the earth like the waters. I long for these things. And Jesus says, that is a righteous life. Then it is the merciful, those that, that are moving in action and compassion, activated compassion towards those that are in need. That's righteous. The pure in heart, those who don't live in duplicity, those who are living in a singularity of transparency and honesty before the Lord. They are who they are. You, you get what you see. They're not one thing this day and another thing this day. That's righteous. And then blessed are the peacemakers, those who are not stirring up strife, but those who with the gospel and through love and grace and mercy and truth are actually bringing peace wherever they go. Jesus says that's what it looks like to live righteously. Now, what's interesting is later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to go hard after the religious view of righteousness, which is personified by the scribes and the Pharisees, and those were the rule keepers. Those were the scorekeepers. They not only kept the rules for themselves, they kept score on everybody else. And Jesus says, yeah, those guys aren't getting into the kingdom if they're trusting in their righteousness. Did you know he said that? He picked the most moral, scripturally informed people who were disciplined, sacrificial, and highly moral. And he looks at them and he says, yeah, if you plan on getting into the kingdom, you've got to be more holy than them. Well, what in the world does that mean? It, it actually means this. Nobody gets in on their own holiness. It's all of grace. And so the Lord doesn't define righteous like we do. We define righteous sometimes inaccurately. We, we, we think of the five sins that we hate and we refuse to do those things. We say, we're righteous. There's a little more to it than that. And so when Jesus says you're living righteously, you're going to be persecuted. If you're living meekly at work, there's going to be people that actually mistreat you in your meekness. If you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness and people know that about you, you're not going to fit in. It doesn't mean you, you know, you're a victim and you, know, you send yourself flowers every three weeks. It, it's not about feeling sorry for yourself. But, but the reality is righteousness can't fit in with unrighteousness. Darkness and light cannot coexist together. And so if we're living in these ways, then we're going to expect that there's going to be some persecution. And I think what probably clarifies it best for me is, is Jesus brings it home and he says, you're blessed when you are persecuted on my account. So it's not some arbitrary religious rule keeping. It's because we're, we're with him, because he's in us, because we live in, at some level with, with Jesus' scent on us, his ways coming from us, and the opposition of Jesus that still exists today, they see that, and so because, as he said in John 15, beginning, I think, in verse 18, going down through verse 20, he said, yeah, what they did to me, they're going to do to you. What they do to the master, they're also going to do uh, to those who serve the master. And so he literally prepped us from day one saying, expect persecution. And so when we look at this thing, we, we, we at least need to understand there's a reason behind it. It's not just that people don't like you. There's a reason at times where they're going to mistreat you. And the primary reason that validates persecution, really it's the only reason, is because they are fighting against Jesus who's in you. It's, it's, it's unavoidable. Do you remember what Paul said to Timothy, the young pastor who was kind of timid? 2 Timothy 3.12, I think that's it. He said, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution. And so when I read that, and this is where I got convicted today going over this stuff, I'm like, I'm not really suffering a lot of persecution. And I started getting historical. Some people get hysterical, some people get historical. I got historical. 
I didn't panic. I just said, now, I have been mistreated because of, of my stance for Christ. But can I let you in on a secret? Most of it hasn't come from unbelievers. Most of the pushback that all, uh, us in the church have experienced has been f- supposedly friendly fire. You know, from people that disagree with us either theologically or doctrinally or philosophically or missionally, and there's these, these little spars, sparring sessions that go on. But I started thinking about this, and I'm like, because um, I'm around enough unbelievers to where I, I should be getting some pushback. So I actually started doing I'm confessing some, some processing here. I started thinking, am I hedging my commitment to Jesus? Am I rounding the edges that he meant to leave a little jagged? Am I guilty in the moment at times of, of trying to make who Jesus is in me a little more palatable, and in doing so, could it be that I'm misrepresenting him? So I didn't have time to answer those questions, but I can tell you right now, the more I say it, the more honest I feel compelled to say, yeah, I think there's times I do that. And I don't even think it's like out of shame or embarrassment. I think it's probably just out of some, some twisted version of, of what I believe to be kindness. Now, we don't want to force feed anybody the gospel. Okay, well, let's not force feed them the gospel, but let's feed them. Let's at least take the top off the jar and stick a spoon in it and see if they're hungry. And so when we're looking at this, let's go on a little bit further. There, there's a reason behind it. So I'm having a hard time getting off the first point. I just want to tell you, if you're experiencing any of this at work, then, then there's a reason for it. You can't afford to operate with the identity of being a victim or making the mistake of taking it personally and feeling, oh, there must just be something wrong with me. Nobody likes me. It could be if you're not fitting in in certain places. Maybe it's because you can't fit in there because Jesus is too big in you and can't get squeezed into that place. So a little further. Here's the mode of persecution. This is where it'll probably be a little bit more, more obvious. Beginning of verse 11, Jesus actually unpacks what persecution could look like. And he helps us here. He says, when others revile you, there's a portion. Persecute you, there's another. That's a more general term, but I'm going to unpack what it means. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Stop right there. Reviled, persecuted, and spoken evilly of. That's not a word. I know it. Don't write me emails. Spoken evil of in a way that is false. They lie about you. Now look at this. So three different ways. When he says they revile you, that's a person getting in your face and talking to you about you, taunting you, mocking you, joking, pushing you verbally, seeing if they can provoke you, making disparaging comments about your beliefs, about your moral stance that is tethered in Scripture, about your views, maybe even politically that somehow that's come out in the conversation, and maybe you've made a a stand on an issue that is actually moral but has been hijacked by the political process, and you're making a moral stand, but they turn that into a political stand, and they lump you in with a group of people that they they hate politically. They revile you. Sometimes you're going to hear it. Sometimes somebody is going to speak to you and tell you in no uncertain terms just how little they think of you and your king, whose name is Jesus. Um, I'm going to come back to the middle one of persecuting, but let me tell you the other side of the coin. Reviling you is them talking to you about you. And then the other side of the coin is they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. That's when they're talking about you. So you don't have the advantage of hearing it firsthand you just all of a sudden realize there are lies being spoken of you. Um, And usually there's nothing you can do about it. It's a powerless feeling to come to the place where you recognize that the verbal barrage has come against you in your absence where you could not give an answer, but by the time you find out about it, it's already been believed by others. That is a hard thing for a lot of believers to go through. And listen, I am stunned at the amount of this that can happen 
uh, to Christians. I, I was naive. When I came to Jesus, I got, I got born again out of a lying lifestyle, out of a slanderous lifestyle, out of a gossiping lifestyle. Like the Lord saved me and the light went off and I realized my tongue was meant for praise and prayer and proclamation, not for gossip, not for slander, not for lying. And it was just one of those things that God was very merciful and he delivered me instantly from it and gave me a high level of conviction. Later on, I would actually ask him, this is a couple years after I got saved, I said, Holy Spirit, never let me get away with using my mouth for anything that falls beneath the dignity of Jesus. Bring me swift and deep conviction. And boy, he's faithful to do that. I apologized to uh, a couple of people the other day for just a joke I made. It wasn't immoral or dirty or anything, but it was insensitive. It wasn't, there's a lot of things it was, and it probably would not have even gotten on your radar because while I went to apologize for it, like God wore me out about it. Like I said it, and then for about an hour, I couldn't do anything about it. I was just sitting there twitching a little bit. Why did I do that? So I actually uh, talked to the three people that were kind of there when I said it, and they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I was like, I've sinned against you. And they're like, dude, man, chill out. It was nothing. But here's the thing. I would rather the Lord have me on that extreme aisle than this other extreme where stuff can come out of our mouths and we don't think a thing about it. Um, friends, sometimes you're on the receiving end of that. And it's, it's only persecution. It it's only qualifies as persecution when it's being said to you because of your loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. If you remain loyal and in allegiance to Jesus, it's going to happen to you. And so I want us to make up our minds ahead of time that we expect it. It doesn't take all of the sting out of it when it happens, but it does. There, there are going to be people straight up that are going to make up lies about you, and they're going to spread those lies and there's nothing you can do about it except enter into a place that, that we adopt the, the, the spirit, the, um, the response of Jesus who was constantly vilified, constantly reviled, constantly lied about. I mean, in the 24 hours before his crucifixion, it was just a host of liars standing before him and saying things about him that weren't true. And remember, Jesus said, yeah, because they did it to me, when I'm in you, they're going to do it to you. Some of you are dealing with that right now in your family, and you're, at the very least, you're being misunderstood and mis misrepresented. And I just want to tell you, um, Jesus is about to call you to a, a, a response that is not natural when that happens. So let's, let's work our way towards there. Here it is. He says, let me read the whole verse. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, uh, for righteousness sake, when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And look at the response to the persecution. Jesus says, right there, rejoice. Child, right there, be glad. And I'm saying, do you have another option? Is there anything else we might be able to do because rejoicing and being glad is not in me in these situations and the honest answer that is the honest answer and I, I just want to tell you when we confess that he goes yeah I know yeah I know it's not in you but I am I'm in you and I want to tell you I want you to rejoice and be glad I'm going to tell you why in a minute let me just give you this first of all this, this rejoicing and expressing gladness in the face of mistreatment, misrepresentation, persecution, it cannot be achieved in the energy of the human will. It, it can't. So when you say, I, I just can't do that, great, but that's put a comma there, not a period. You, you can't do that, but in order to truly rejoice and express this, this gladness when we're mistreated, only comes through a growing intimacy with Jesus and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the more intimate we are with Jesus by faith, the more yielded we are to the Holy Spirit on the daily basis before the persecution hits us. That's the key. If you don't have it before, you probably won't have it in the moment. 
And so the intimacy and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is actually the, the source of this counterintuitive response to rejoice and be glad. And by the way, he's not saying, I want you to enter into some twisted enjoyment of pain and wrongdoing. I want you to love it. That's not what he's saying. He's not telling us to love the treatment. He's not saying enjoy it. He is saying rejoice in the midst of it. And so our joy is obviously not going to be centered in what's happening to us. It's never meant to be that way, even when things are going good. The joy comes from him through us. It is not natural. It's not produced by the will, the flesh, trying harder. It's not stoicism where you just kind of grind your teeth and fake a church smile and just say, bless God, I'm so happy, man. This is awesome. It's, it's not that kind of silliness. It's, it's literally a rejoicing that arises when we are made aware that we're participating in a degree of identifying with Jesus that has actually positioned us against the world's hostility. What does that mean? It, can I say it this way? This is probably not the theological way to say it, but I think it'll connect with you better. The, the opposition of God, of Jesus Christ, that colors our entire culture and world system, and it's carried out by people that don't know God, they see Jesus in you, and they can't stand it. But here's the thing. They see Jesus in you. They see Jesus in you. They see Jesus in you. And there is our rejoicing. Our rejoicing is, is not in the situation. Our rejoicing is when we are brought up by the Holy Spirit above the crashing waves and we see the big picture that, oh my word, Jesus, they see enough of you and me to hate me. This is awesome. The treatment is not fun. The treatment can be physically agonizing, relationally agonizing, circumstantially suffocating. But when, when we are thinking, when our minds are renewed in the spirit and through the word and we're, we're able to grasp in the moment, we, we come to this place where it's in those situations, it's really just you and Jesus. And if we can allow ourselves to come away from shame and stand in his grace, we can actually picture him saying, I am so pleased with you because they are coming against me, but they're doing it against you or through you, and they see me in you, child of God. And when we can actually receive that, we're like, oh my word, there is finally enough Jesus in me and on me that it's not just some little private thing in a corner of my heart, but he's coming out of my life and they hate it. This is awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm really not exaggerating. I'm saying that if we can't get to that point, then we will lose our grip when we're mistreated and persecuted because of righteousness sake and because of Christ's sake. And again, I don't find anywhere in here where Jesus says, pretend like you love it. He's, he's, he's literally expecting it. The Bible says that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' confession was, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. That's not a, a glib, oh, this is no big deal because I'm with the Father. He was feeling it. He experienced betrayal and the agony and the rejection and the, the physical abuse and the taunting. He, he hated all of that. He knew it was coming. And as he was experiencing it, he hated it. But it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so he calls us and invites us into that too. So the command again to rejoice and be glad is humanly impossible, but not spiritually impossible. And so we have to determine um, how are we going to respond to the mistreatment at work? And by the way, I'm really feeling that tonight. I feel like maybe there's somebody here tonight that is, is being in some way mistreated misrepresented or even persecuted at work and I hope that you'll receive this because you're not imagining things there are actually situations Christians where we don't win circumstantially hear me on this we are overcomers we are victorious we are able to arise above but I'm going to tell you John the Baptist got his greatest affirmation of who he was in his character 
while he was in prison waiting to be beheaded. He never got out. But Jesus says, no greater man has ever been born of a woman than this man who's sitting in jail right now. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. And circumstantially, he did not escape the circumstances, but I'm going to tell you, not, in other words, everything didn't get better on Tuesday. It's not the way it always works. Sometimes God says, I want you to abide there. Joseph was in the prison unjustly accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife, and he stayed there a long time. Now, in his case, he was eventually promoted. We read that in like 15 verses. He goes from in the prison to promoted. We don't read that the fact every day of every year for years he stayed in the prison. And what did he do? He just kept honoring God. And sometimes God leaves you in the workplace where you can't prosper and you can't get promoted and that you, get pa you got passed over again. And you're not imagining it. It could very well be persecution. But I'm going to tell you, there's the ability through the Holy Spirit for you to rejoice in the midst of that and be glad. In your family, when you're the weirdo Christian, how many of you are the weirdo Christian in your family? Raise your hand. Is that it? Man, our leaders are not doing their job here at the church. We need more radicals. Um, sometimes that's just, that's just your role. That's just who you're going to be at the family reunion and at Thanksgiving dinner. Typically, they will kind of lower their heads and say, all right, we're going to ask the weird Christian to pray over the meal. They know. They may not like it, but in the religious moment, you're the first person they turn to. So sometimes you just got to wear it. And you, you just got to say, hey, uh, I don't love it. I don't love the way it makes me feel. But every wrong treatment against you is an invitation to press him closer to the Lord. He loves the crushed in spirit. He loves the brokenhearted. He loves the afflicted. He loves everybody. But there is a preciousness when we experience wrong treatment for him. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get to it in a minute. Um, let me give you the precedent for this persecution. Because it didn't start with, with you if you've experienced it. It didn't start with Jesus' disciples. Jesus gives, he cites a historical biblical reference. He says, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So simply put, the people of God have always been reviled and rejected by a world that doesn't know him and doesn't want to know him. That's just the way it works. And so it's not new. Um, this has been going on, frankly, since Cain and Abel in the garden where Abel brings a sacrifice that pleases the Lord, and Cain just says, because God rejected Cain's sacrifice, and Cain just says, you got to go, Abel. He kills his brother. It's always been a persecution of, of, of one people group against another people group. And the people that want to honor God and trust in who he says they are are often uh, targeted by those who don't know the Lord. And so the prophets, of course, we have a long history of that biblically. I'm not going to get into all of that tonight, but um, Israel rejected oftentimes and, and, and killed their prophets. Some of the laments of the Lord, the, the Lord himself in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, you're going to find that the Lord is saying, I sent you prophets and you killed them. I mean, imagine that. The very messengers of righteousness and truth have historically been slaughtered by people that don't want to hear God. And to whatever degree that we're carrying the gospel on us, to, to whatever degree, whether we're verbally sharing it, and by the way, eventually, Christians, we verbally share the gospel. We don't all have a pulpit. We don't all need a platform, but we all have the message inside of us. And so we share that, and some of the people we share it with are going to get saved. They're going to say, that's, that's the most amazing, stunning news that my broken heart has ever heard. I want this Jesus who you've just proclaimed to me. And they'll literally receive Jesus, and their eternities will be secured in time. And so there are other people that are going to hate that message. And they'll come hard after you as a messenger. The question for me as a Christian is, am I going to let the ones that hate the message mute me so that I never get to speak to the ones that will love the message. And because we don't know who either group is, I think it was Spurgeon that said, if we knew who the elect of God were, if they had a blue stripe down their back, 
We, he said, we just walk around London lifting up coattails and seeing who's got the blue stripe. The reality is, is we don't know who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. So we live a life that gives expression to the beauty and the majesty, the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And some of those people are going to believe. And for some, uh, they're going to hate it. And when they come against people in modern times, when our brothers and sisters um, in the Middle East, and there's horrific stories coming out of the Middle East and Africa right now, um, very quick side trail here. Uh, I was just, I was thinking yesterday and just listening to the Lord. And I was actually, I think I was preparing for this. And I came across a headline online. It, I think it was in Germany. Uh, the the mark, uh, m- uh, measurable uptick in persecution against Jews. That they're telling, they're warning people in parts of Germany, Jewish people, uh, don't wear the yarmulke in public don't do it. You're, you're going to get targeted. And I thought to myself, this is not just random stuff. Massive persecution against Jews and Christians is what characterizes the last days. It's all in the Bible. And so we're not saying, oh, it's just kind of like a blip on the radar. No, all of the metrics that follow these things are saying without um, uh, discrepancy, no, this stuff is marketed going up. So that's where we're living right now. And that's just the history of it. And so Jesus says we need to be prepared for that. So as we go, as we've gone through that, the, listen, all of that can get very depressing. And, and there's really a couple of different responses potentially to bad news. Because all of that's bad news. That's not good news. That's not encouraging. We can either continue to bury our heads in the sand as a collective people. We can either, you know, we, we could also just say, uh, just give me somebody that'll tell me the nice stuff, man. Get, I, give me some honey and some sugar. Give me some of the stuff that makes me feel awesome. And what, what's happening is, is people are going into sugar comas, spiritually speaking. Like, I, I love the sweet stuff. There's a lot of sweet stuff in the Bible. But there are also times where the sweet stuff has gotten, so, listen, you can't, you're, you're going to die if all you do is eat starburst and cookies. You're going to die. You need some broccoli. You've got to get some asparagus in you. You need some cabbage. That stuff is not tasty like a good, oh man, I'm getting hungry, like a, like a, a chocolate chip cookie. I, I'd rather eat the cookie, but I need the broccoli. And when it comes to truth, friends, listen, there's a lot of candy stores that are open every Sunday. I don't want to be critical, but I, I do want to take a moment to say it's too late in the game for us to be self-deceived about what's happening in our culture. We need the sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. We need them to raise up a generation of that, and we have to extract our heads out of the sand and recognize our culture and our generation for what it is. It doesn't mean we wave a white flag of doom and surrender. It just means, hey, there's a fight going on. It's a fight not against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling in the spirit. And so we have to push back in the spirit. How do we do that? Intimacy with Jesus, praying, fasting for breakthrough, seeking his face, proclaiming him to the nations, living in holiness, living in righteousness, giving under the great commission with our time and our money and our effort. Yes, that's how we fight our battles. And so all of that stuff comes together. And so at the end of the age... So I'm going to go through all of the eschatological crazy stuff of the book of Revelation. I don't know what you believe about the return of Jesus. I don't want to fight anybody over that tonight. But we do all agree on this. He's coming to a planet near us soon. He's coming back. And at the end of the age, it's him and those who believed on him. That's it. The eternal age, the eternal age is Jesus and all of those who look to him by faith. That is the population of the cosmos, the living population, for all of eternity. And friend, if if you've believed on Jesus, you actually possess that victory right here tonight. It is yours. He paid for it. He provided it. He offered it. Holy Spirit sealed it. It's done. You belong to him. And so we're enduring. We're pressing on. We're pressing in. We're persevering. Because why? Because we know we have won the battle. 
The, the, the war is, is effectively, in, in, the, in the strongest sense of the word, it is completed, it is, it is declared, it is done. But there is still a process that actualizes that victory. It brings it into time, and um, we get to be a part of it. So for all of, all of the poor in spirit, all of the persecuted, all of the meek, all of the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, all of those who mourn in this life, let me tell you about the blessings. Because Jesus gave a blessing for every, in every beatitude. This is where we arrive as Christians. And I'm not telling you that you don't have this now. I'm just telling you that the full manifestation of what we have has not occurred yet. It is not the only reality. It is the reality, but it's a contested reality. We have the world fighting against it. We have the devil fighting against it. We have a demonic army fighting against it. Our own flesh fights against it. So the full uncontested manifestation of our victory is coming. And because it's coming, we're going to walk in the reality of that right now. So what does that look like? First of all, we have a guaranteed inheritance. Jesus says this, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and he says in another place, they shall inherit the earth. This is in the Beatitudes. I want you to think of the stunning level of truth that he's saying in these little short sentences that our brains just can't process. Just slow down a moment and consider what he's saying to us. Yours, child of God, follower of Jesus, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is, I even looked it up in the Greek, it is a present tense active verb. That means he's not saying, yep, yours will be the kingdom. He's saying yours is right now the kingdom of heaven. And then he speaks of the time and space component of it, the actualization. He says, you shall inherit the earth. He points to a future reality where the followers of Jesus who currently, presently, in every generation have inheritance of the kingdom of God within the kingdom of God, he says, and one day it's going to be fully manifest on the earth. It's, it almost, it's, like, a, it's like a big old thing to try to swallow on a Wednesday night. Um, let me try to find the best way. So, when, when a human being dies and they have opportunity, they often leave an inheritance for those that they care about. And depending on what that human being has done throughout their life, that inheritance can appear big or it can appear uh, comparatively small. Sometimes it's nothing. Jesus owns everything. He owns everything. I mean, we think of our speck of dust called planet Earth, and we think, wow, man, to own the Earth. He, he kind of giggles at that, I think. He's like, um, there's a little bit more to it than that. I'm giving you the entire kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of... He, he says it's yours. What, what does that mean? Um, it means more than I can cram in on a Wednesday night, but I'm going to tell you at least a part of it. It is... It is what the prodigal son, uh, excuse me, the father of the prodigal son, he said something to the elder brother. Do you remember the elder brother? He was protesting. You never gave me a fatted calf. You never threw, him, you never threw me a party. You never put a ring on my finger. And the father who represents God in that passage looked at his son. He says, what are you talking about? Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. When I, when I think on these concepts, I realize how, how often, how common it is for us to live like beggars instead of kids, instead of his children. This does have a material aspect to it, but it's more than that. I actually just, I don't even want to cheapen it by saying, you know, tell God what you need, he'll give it to you. Um, I, I'm not going to stand opposed to that statement, but it's more than that. It's, it's the heart of the Father. It's the values of Jesus and the kingdom. He says, everything I have my name on is yours. Everything. The entire kingdom of heaven. And then he, he adds this later on. He, he's talking about uh, the meek inheriting the earth. The meek 
they don't jockey for position. They don't try to establish their name. They don't fight to the death over a little piece of acreage. The meek just, they're happy to see other people get blessed in the moment. They're fine with that. And Jesus says, yep, those are the people that are going to have the inheritance of the entire earth. I want you to think about that. Who's running the world right now? It's actually a good question. I frankly don't know, but the people that appear to be running the world right now are global politicians in strategic countries. And there's a lot of chaos in the world, but I guarantee you some of those men and women are going to bed tonight thinking they're the stuff. And, and Jesus just, I think he giggles at this thing. He's like, you think you're so big and powerful. He's like, let me show you this little 68-year-old lady in Alabama who tarries in prayer before me. She actually owns the earth. You own none of it. See, that's the thing I love about the Lord. He, he's, he's completely patient, but one of these days he's going to pull back the curtain of reality and he's going to say, everybody, I want your attention. You were all that didn't believe in me. You were all fools. You missed it completely. Let me tell you who is actually the most powerful. Let me tell you who is actually the most honorable. Let me tell you who is actually the most wealthy. Let me tell you all of these things that y'all fought and warred and hated over. Let me tell you, it belongs to my people and it always has. And one of these days, friends, it's not going to be by faith. It's not going to be a, a philosophy or a theology. It's going to be actuality. And so I want you to remember that right now. If you're doing without some stuff right now, two things I'll challenge you with. One, ask God if you're living beneath your inheritance. Just ask him. I'm not saying you are or you aren't, but it could be that you have not because you ask not. Or it could be that you have not because you ask and you will use it in a way that doesn't glorify him. You consume it upon your passions. But I would just say this, Lord, what am I living beneath as pertains to my inheritance? If if the kingdom of heaven belongs to me, um, I don't know that I'm living that out in the way that you mean it. Show me what that means and teach me how to live it. And you may be surprised that your life gets touched in ways that maybe wouldn't happen if you didn't actually press in. And then the other thing that I would say is if you happen, because not everybody on the earth that follows Jesus is destined to be rich and wealthy and quote-unquote successful as man deems it. Uh, there, listen, there's a lot of poor people on earth that are heirs of the kingdom, joint heirs with Jesus, and it's just not manifesting right now. You know, one of the problems I had and have had and still have with the prosperity gospel, if it's going to be gospel, it has to work wherever it's preached. And it's easy to preach prosperity gospel in the United States of America, especially in the 90s. It's real easy because everybody's got an opportunity. Go preach it in Calcutta and see what the response is. Now, I just lost some of you right there, but my point is this. Being one who is an heir of the kingdom of God does not always mean that you um, have a uh, wealth upgrade immediately in this world. Some, some of us are just going to have to wait for it. But it doesn't make you any less of an heir. So that's why we're told, be content with such things as you have. And give God thanks in all things. And by all means, quit comparing yourself to whatever is being marketed to you on the incessant barrage of, of uh, materialism and capitalism in the Amer uh, United States of America. Uh, you're not taking any of it with you. So we're promised, we're guaranteed an inheritance. We're promised relief. He says that they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that mourn. They'll be comforted. They're going to be comforted. We're going to be comforted. You're going to mourn. You're going to experience loss. You're going to sense longing in your heart. There's going to be times and seasons where you feel the, the absence of complete wholeness. And let me tell you, it's going to be that way because we cannot, in the, in the truest sense of the word, we cannot be perfectly satisfied until Jesus Christ is, we are in his presence. Until he returns, that's why Jesus says, we mourn for the bridegroom, we mourn for his return. And so listen, when you wake up, and, and you may have things going swimmingly for you in the moment, 
But I'm going to tell you, if, if, if you will get true to your soul, you'll be like, all of this is fine, this is wonderful, but I am still missing the thing I want the most, and that is to see the face of Jesus. I just want to see you, Lord, and until I see you, I, my soul can't be completely at rest. Yes, there's peace. Yes, we abide. Yes, we trust. But I'm not talking about that. I'm saying in even the most abiding, trusting, peaceful person, there is still this little place that says, not quite yet. I cannot be fully content until I see you. But listen, you're going to be comforted. He's going to meet that, that, that inner ache. He will not leave us as orphans. He's not going to forget about us. At the Father's appointed time, the Son of God's going to get up off the throne of heaven, and he's going to return with an angelic army to planet Earth. He's going to put down Satan. He's going to put down every demon. He's going to establish his throne, and the glory of the Lord will be the light of the Earth. It's going to happen. And so we're going to be comforted, but I don't want to wait until it happens to take comfort in that. I'm taking comfort in it as I'm shouting it tonight. There's relief available. We experience fullness of life. They shall be satisfied. What does that mean? Well, remember, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's who this promise is to. You're going to be satisfied. You're if you will just keep hungering and thirsting after righteousness, two things. Ultimately, in that same moment I just described when Jesus comes back, you're going to be fully satisfied and you will never, ever long for anything again. Longing can only occur, occur, occur when there is an absence. So we long for what is not yet. When Jesus arrives, there'll never be any longing because our greatest desire will be completely met. And I, again, that is going to happen, but until then, the more we hunger and thirst after righteousness in this life, the more we pursue those things that are righteous and the more satisfied we are as we uh, obtain them, as we reach those things. Listen, I have tasted every pleasure that planet Earth can offer. I didn't get saved until I was 24. It's embarrassing, but I lived my life to taste every pleasure I could possibly taste. And I, I soaked in for, from age 14 to 24, put as much of it in me and on me as I could do. I just wanted pleasure. And so I tried everything that the world offers for it. And I never was satisfied until August 4th, 1994, when I met Jesus Christ in apartment 112, 3100 Sweetwater Road, Lawrenceville, Georgia, 30044. I met him on that beer-stained, soaked, nasty patch of carpet. I got up off the floor, went to bed. When I woke up, I've never been the same. Never been the same. What happened? I pursued, I, he pursued me. I met him. I discovered righteousness. He gave me an appetite for righteousness. I didn't want to do those other things anymore. Why? Because they were a step down from the satisfaction that I found in Christ. And so we're going to continue to be satisfied as we continue to pursue righteousness. He also says we're going to receive mercy. And we need it. <laughs> Blessed are the merciful, oh, excuse me, yeah, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And, and friends, most of that is going to come from the Lord. It's very interesting to me. When we give mercy, it's always horizontal, because God doesn't need our mercy. So we don't render mercy unto God. We render mercy to each other. It's commanded, and it's empowered. People that have received mercy, give mercy. If, if we live long years and patterns of never wanting to give mercy and never giving mercy, chances are we've never actually experienced the mercy of God. We're probably not saved. If we can live in unbroken, long, prolonged seasons of being indifferent to those that need mercy, we don't have the heart of Jesus. But when we do give mercy, something happens, man. The more mercy we give to others, I believe we actually become more aware of how much mercy we're experiencing from God. And ultimately, I can't wait for this day. When we stand before Jesus and we see him as he is and we recognize how vastly we underestimated the holiness of God, we're going to say, I thought I knew how I had received mercy on earth, but now that I see him, now I know just how much mercy I actually received. So friends, listen. If you're struggling with difficult people in your life, and chances are you are, um, just remember how much mercy he gives you. You're not as lovable as you think you are. Come on, not always. 
Uh, we all have a couple of briars on us, and, and God just says, I just love you, I'm going to give you mercy. But I'm going to tell you, in those seasons, if we cut mercy off from other people, we might experience less mercy from the Lord. Just a thought. Intimacy with God. Y'all still with me? I got six minutes, according to the clock. I don't know if you got six minutes left in you, but I got it in me. Here we go. We experience intimacy with God. Blessed are the, the pure in heart. They shall see God. They shall see God. They shall see God. Um, I'm not even going to go into the heavenly realm on this one. I'm just going to make it right now. When your heart is pure and you're pursuing the Lord and you're not living a divided life, a hypocritical life, an in and out, up and down Christian life, when you just made up your mind that Jesus is everything and come hell or high water, and I mean that literally, not flippantly, no matter what happens, I'm just going to press in with a wholeheartedness to the Lord. The Bible of Jesus is very clear. He says, you're going to see the Lord. You're going to experience him. It's a statement of growing intimacy, increasing intimacy intimacy you're going to see the lord everywhere you're, you're going to become a seer in the spirit you can I, i'll even go there with it but you're going to sense the lord you're going to be able to perceive the lord in ways you're going to be able to feel the lord in ways that you have not before that's not when you get to heaven listen as believers we should be seeing god not with a natural eye but we should be seeing him I look at these little children that were in here tonight, and I know some of their stories, and I'm not at liberty to share them, but some of them are really, really broken. And I see some of those broken kids and the histories that they have, and they're in here worshiping, and some of them are really, some of them are just, you know, they're just being kids, but some of them are just pressing through. And you know what happens? I, I stop seeing the kid, and I start seeing God. I see God in their countenance, God in their testimony, God in their victory, God in their worship at times, God in their tears. How does that happen? Because we're pressing into him for intimacy. We can see God everywhere when our hearts are free. Next to the last one, we will resemble and reflect God. Those are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. That goes back to what I said earlier people start seeing Jesus in you. That's what he's referring to there. To be called the son of somebody in, in Jesus' day meant, oh, he's just like his daddy. He's just like his daddy, for better or for worse. To be like, yeah, he's the son of whoever. Bar is the Jewish word. So when you see bar in the New Testament, bar, Barabbas, Barnabas, those, that's the word son of. And so Simon Barjona, Simon Bar, son of John. Jesus is saying here, when, when we are peacemakers and operating in gospel peace, when people see us, they'll actually see God on us. And they'll say, that's a daughter of God. I don't know, when I'm around that woman, I just feel God. That's how we'd say it today. When I'm in her presence, I just sense the Lord. That's exactly the, the sentiment that is within what Jesus is saying here. That as we live for gospel peace and gospel reconciliation and gospel humility and gospel honesty, as we are peacemakers, the nature of God, which is in us, starts coming out of us. And people say, Jesus follower, she's a Jesus follower, he's a Jesus follower, I see God in him, I see God in her. And I don't know that there could be a greater honor on any of our lives just to know that, that people see God on us. And then last thing, I'm, okay, we have a great reward awaiting us. This is for the persecuted, by the way. These are the blessings. Your reward is great in heaven when you endure the persecution. Your reward is great in heaven. The word great there indicates like, not just like, yeah, there's a reward waiting on you. When God, the Son of God, Jesus, says you've got a reward, and oh, by the way, it's great. It is great. Don't even bother trying to figure out what that is. Don't even bother because we'll, we'll, we'll soil it with our paltry estimation of what he might have. I'm telling you, listen to me. Well, you are. You're stuck here. So here we go. I got one minute. You have no clue. I have no clue what he has waiting for us. I'm telling you, it's real. He's not, he's not, he's not like people. We exaggerate. We lie. We, we, we give false marketing, man. We, we blow stuff up. We put filters on it, amen? We Instagram all our stuff to make it look better than it actually is. Put that filter on that. 
Um, Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, oh, when you suffer for me, when, when you keep with me in spite of the world around you hating me, I want to tell you something. I have been working on a reward for you. It is reserved. I told Peter to tell y'all, First Peter, that the reward is reserved for you, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it's waiting there for you. And child, it is so great, great. That's you. That's not for the Christian superstar. That's you and me, and he's got that awaiting us. So let's stand to our feet. Let's go out and have it. I told you I'd encourage you before you got out of here tonight. The people that left 20 minutes ago go home mad, not y'all. Y'all, y'all hung out. Lord, you are good to us, and we, Lord, I'm just reminded, you've encouraged me tonight. God, thank you that I has not seen. We don't have a clue just what you've got awaiting us, and it's worth it, Lord. I say by faith tonight on Wednesday that it's worth it. It's worth it. You're worth it. You are worth it, Jesus. You are the reward, Lord. You're the greatest reward, but Lord, you said that you had something prepared for us. And Lord, I am, I'm beyond giddy about that. I cannot believe that you've got something for us. And we say yes. Now, Lord, let our yes in this moment of clarity turning into the yes of walking it out tomorrow. Walk with us, Lord. We don't want to do it for you. We want to do it with you. And because you said you'd never leave us, we'll do it with you. In Jesus, in your name, amen, amen.